We live in a time of tremendous opportunity for innovators, entrepreneurs, and those with skill and imagination. But it seems at every turn, there are forces that slow us down or get us off track. I believe you can trigger your independence and lead a flourishing life, be free to choose, and live according to your own values. Join us in a conversation about big ideas in life, liberty, and the pursuit of your happiness. Welcome to The John Riley Project. Hey, everybody. How you doing? And welcome to The John Riley Project. It's, wow, it's Wednesday, June 2nd, man. Time is flying. Hope you had a great three-day weekend. And we're back at you with another podcast episode. Today, we're going to talk about the Tulsa Race Massacre. And and really, I want to get into this whole idea, the, kind of the story within the story, which is Black Wall Street and and how they created so much wealth there in the first place before it was so immorally shut down. We're going to kind of look at both sides of that story today. And then I'm going to talk a little bit about some networking tips and things that, that I'm learning in uh, the 21st century and how people go about networking and how this I kind of all this topic started with one of my son's friends and who's doing an internship. And I, I I just kind of want to share that story with you, but I thought it'd be a good jumping off point. You know, like I said, in this podcast, I want to provide value for you so you can be a better person in your business life and in your personal life. So, yeah, we'll talk a bit about networking as well. But thanks for joining us. You know, this is episode number 239, and we're live streaming on YouTube and Facebook. That means we welcome your thoughts and comments. So please type them in. I'll read them on the air, and we'll have a bit of a dialogue. But let's let's get into this topic. And about the Tulsa race massacre. And I mean, this is just such an incredible story. And, you know, it's been in the news because we just celebrated the 100th year anniversary of this terrible event. Uh, Joe Biden was in Tulsa talking about it. And, you know, it's one of it's it's this story, you know, where this whole black neighborhood was essentially burnt to the ground and there was death and destruction and homelessness and and just a complete and utter um you know, violation of people's rights that occurred at this. But what's incredible about this story is it's so largely understood. Um, I know for me, um, going to a public high school um, up in the Bay Area, San Francisco Bay Area, I never heard about the Tulsa race massacre, never heard about it at all. In fact, you know, I never even heard about Juneteenth when we talked about that on a previous podcast, which was sort of the Juneteenth is what occurs. Does it happen? I think on June 15th, I think is the date when the essentially the Emancipation Proclamation finally reached the the slaves in the southern part of Texas. And that's when slavery was formally abolished. And so it's an important holiday, too. But I never learned about these things in government school, in public school. Frankly, I don't think a lot of people in private school learned about the Tulsa race massacre. That's why this is such an incredible story, because the more I've learned about it, not only are we, you know, essentially sunshine, you know, is kind of the best disinfectant. We're bringing it to, you know, into the into focus. We're not hiding it in the, in the shadows of history. It's coming to light, which is good. But there's still a lot of just fantastic lessons in this whole process that I really want to get into. So what happened? So this was apparently it was like on May 29th through the 31st. 
in 1921, so 100 years ago, there was this prosperous district in the city of Tulsa, Oklahoma, and it was the Greenwood District, and it was known as Black Wall Street. And so this area, this modern, majestic, sophisticated, and unapologetically black community boasted of banks, hotels, cafes, clothiers, movie theaters, and contemporary homes. Not to mention luxuries such as indoor plumbing and a remarkable school system that superiorly educated black children. You're thinking this is 100 years ago. This is during the days of Jim Crow when, you know, blacks were treated as second class citizens if they were fortunate, often third class. They were deprived of so many of the rights that we all are supposed to enjoy. This is an area where blacks thrived. Which to me is is amazing if you look back in history that this this piece of history was never really shared, but it it all went to hell. And what happened? Now, according to one story, there was a black person that attempted to rape a white woman. Um, now, the other part of the story is that a black guy accidentally stepped on a white woman's foot in an elevator, you know, which that was probably the truth. It got blown into some false narrative that resulted in two days of racial violence, Um, 300 dead, 800 injured, 9000 people were displaced and made homeless. Twenty five blocks of this community went up in flames lit by kerosene and nitroglycerin. Unbelievable. And a lot of this was obviously fueled by the racism that you know existed in American society back then. And they perceived that one, I mean, even if they, they thought it was true, that one, what they thought was true was true, that a black person had raped a white woman. That's no reason, obviously, to burn down the whole friggin' community, but they did. And then to make matters even more difficult, these white perpetrators, the ones that committed violence, not just the ones that burned down the city, but there was all kinds of mayhem that went on as a result. They were given impunity. They they were essentially not held accountable to the law. The government gave them a pass. And at the same time, blacks were locked up. Blacks were sent to internment camps, kind of like the way the Japanese Americans were rounded up during World War II under Franklin Delano Roosevelt. You know, he also did that with Italian American citizens, German American citizens. They had these essentially like prison camps where they moved these people. Um, that's what they did after Tulsa. They, they moved a lot of black people, innocent people, rounded them up, sent them off to internment camps, and the b- white perpetrators were given impunity. Um, and Crazy. The other part of this is nuts is that within two days, the mayor was already planning a redevelopment of that area to turn it into a new industrial uh, site because this was at prime location for expansion for business in Tulsa. And this kind of shows you that private interests and the government were kind of working in cahoots, right? Kind of as they do today, um, where you know, they they were leveraging this opportunity. They violate the rights of certain people using government as their tool just to enrich these, you know, essentially these these private um, these private interests. And then what ended up happening to the black people that own that property? Well, they saw their property destroyed. There was no um, there was no restitution. There was no um, make good or the, the people that 
that committed the the violence, that committed the destruction, were not held accountable and have to make amends for this, have to pay reparations, not at all. So again, I like you people talk about systemic racism. I think systemic racism is a real thing. But to me, the system of systemic racism is the government. Because if you look at even today in cases where there is, you know, like take Breonna Taylor, you know, the police busted into her apartment and shot and killed her. She was innocent. That's a very famous case going on now. There's a lot of examples of this where there's police, which are government employees, often police enforcing terrible government laws like the war on drugs. A lot of ways, systemic racism, in my opinion, the system is government. Systemic racism is government racism. That's what we saw here in Tulsa. Now, so many lessons learned from this process. And, you know, really, there's the racial side of this. And then there's the economic side. So the racial side is should be obvious, right? I mean, this is a terrible stain on American history. A lot of these people that were that were displaced, that were killed, that were harmed, that were made homeless. A lot of them were former slaves or children of former slaves. Um, But what's incredible here, and this is the part that I think is really important to stress, like this podcast, I talk about it as a celebration of our inalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, right? That is encoded in the preamble of our Declaration of Independence, it also says that all men are created equal. You know, really, that means all men and women. All Everyone is essentially equal under the law. Well, what's amazing is, is that that idea that we all have equal rights, that we all have rights to our own life, to make choices about our life, to live our life according to our values, and as a natural extension of our right to our own life, we have property rights. Those are beautiful ideas that really makes America great. But these 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 hooligans, these these racists that claim to be patriots, that claim to be supporters of America are the ones that are actually violating the fundamental code of what America is supposed to be about. They are the ones that want to violate the rights of other people. So they can get what they want. So, you know, that's why I always say that when we think of rights, we have to always think about that the other guy has rights, too. And in this case, they didn't care. Right. They they set their 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 district in the city aflame with kerosene and nitroglycerin. They they burned businesses to the ground. They destroyed the wealth that was there and they weren't held accountable before the law. So the fact that. This story was hidden from our history, was not taught to me when I was in high school, gosh, a long time ago, 40 years ago. Um, When I was in high school, this was never taught. The Tulsa Race Massacre and Black Wall Street, Juneteenth was never taught. But if it could have been taught in a way that not only are we bringing it to light, making people understand what happened, but it's an opportunity to really teach what makes America great, that we all have individual rights and these rights were violated. Individual rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, those rights were violated. So it's a missed opportunity, but I want to get to this other lesson that's so important, so important. And 
it's how in the heck did Black Wall Street become such a wealthy area in the first place? To me, that's the story within the story, right? Is how could it have been that 100 years ago, this black community was prospering, that was, you know, experiencing so much wealth that, you know, what happened? And, and if you dig in, it's mostly capitalism that it happened and, and a way of sort of playing the game effectively, which I love talking about on this podcast. So what happened? Well, the blacks in that area, they were landowners, right? And as a landowner, you have, you have property and you can develop that property and you can, you can monetize that property. And that's what they did. But the interesting part of this, this is a story within the story within the story is, you know, how after the civil war, Blacks were promised 40 acres and a mule. I think that came from, was it General Sherman? Um, but it was quickly ignored. It turned, into, turned out to be a lie that the, when the slaves were freed, they were given very little, if anything. You know, we talk about, they talk about reparations now in the year 2021, and that's a debatable topic. But certainly in 1865, when the Civil War ended, those people deserve reparations. Ideally, land that their property owner had enslaved them on. That would have been the proper land for them to receive as part of this. Of course, that was a lie. The government failed them. But what was interesting is, is that during this same period of time, Native American tribes in the Oklahoma area also had black slaves. I didn't even know this. They also had black slaves. And when, when slavery was abolished, the federal government ordered the Native American tribes to give those black slaves land as a form of reparation. And I was like, wow, that's interesting. So the government was not holding white people accountable for the reparations after slavery, but they were holding the Native Americans accountable to it. And that's a big reason why the blacks in Oklahoma had land. And then what's interesting is that there was, in 1906, there was a gentleman, his name was O.W. Gurley, and he was a wealthy African-American from Arkansas. He moved to Tulsa. And, you know, this is, what, 1906. So the massacre happened 1929, Excuse me, in, in 1921. And during that time, what he did is he purchased land in Tulsa and he made sure that he only sold it to blacks. Now, in today's world, that would be illegal, right? Because you can't racially discriminate on who you sell land to or, or you know, sell housing to sell real estate to. You can't racially discriminate. But he did. And what, what's interesting to me is that he was essentially playing the game. He was playing the game with the cards that he'd been dealt because, you know, well, and this is what's incredible. And this quote in this article said, ironically, black businesses benefited from being self-sufficient, in this case, selling land only to black people. And because there was a system of separation of race in society and business education and residential areas, 
This encouraged black people to work with other black people and build wealth within that black community. And they were able to do it starting with owning land. And from that, they were able to keep that wealth in that community. Now, what ended up happening was that a lot of this land was sitting on vast oil reserves. So there was this big oil boom that happened where a lot of these landowners became fabulously rich. Black landowners became fabulously rich. That income flowed into that community. And then they made a point of buying and selling within their community. They said for every dollar that was spent in the Black Wall Street area, it circulated 36 times before that money eventually left the community. So as a result, by focusing on capitalism within their community, because they were essentially not able to sell outside their community because they were there was Jim Crow laws, there was discrimination. They said, okay, F you guys, we're going to figure out a way to do it on our own. But what they did is they embraced it. They embraced capitalism as a result. And that's the reason that they prospered so much. They owned land. They were fortunate that it was on oil reserves. That oil was, you know, made them wealthy. That money circulated and cascaded over and over again in this Greenwood or Black Wall Street area of Tulsa. And that's what made them rich. And I think that's another lesson that is important to understand here is that if we let people be free, free to set up their own businesses to be entrepreneurs, they can go out and build wealth. And this, in this case, it demonstrated that black entrepreneurs were fully capable of, of generating vast uh, amounts of wealth. And they did. Even in spite of all the discrimination and segregation that went on around them, they, in fact, used that segregation to their advantage. And I'm not justifying the segregation, but they found a way to be creative and be able to make themselves prosperous. And, and I think that's a really great story. Um, because we look around now, we, we see cases today where Building wealth is a lot of ways is discouraged or the system is set up. It's rigged for certain people, for certain businesses that being an entrepreneur is a lot of times, um, you know, there's always forces that are trying to drag entrepreneurs down. I mean, this whole notion of the gig economy, which I'm a big supporter of, a lot of people want to make the gig economy illegal. Um, In a lot of other cases, there are. There are laws that exist today that prevent people from going into certain industries unless they have an occupational license. You have to be, I don't know, it's something ridiculous. You have to get hundreds, if not thousands of hours of training just to be able to shampoo and cut hair. I know it's kind of a crazy example, but it's, it's another way that the system is set up to discourage entrepreneurs to protect the interests of the established businesses. But in this case, in Black Wall Street, they encouraged the entrepreneurism. They, these were freed slaves that valued their liberty. And they went about and built their own society, and they prospered. Now, the other thing that happened that's similar to what's happening now is when they prospered, the, the, the people, that, the whites that were not um, wealthy— 
They were envious, right? And that's what we're seeing now. Like how many times do we keep hearing people say, you know, tax the 1%, tax the wealthy. And their people are angry at billionaires. There's all this envy. There's always been envy against people that have money. But in a lot of cases, there are people that have money that have acquired that wealth through very virtuous means, just like these entrepreneurs in Black Wall Street in Tulsa in the early part of the 20th century. So again, some of the parallels are interesting because we see people that were just envious of them, that just wanted to tear them down. Now, obviously, a lot of this was fueled by racism, but a lot of it was fueled by classism. Not not only did they not want to see these blacks doing well, I mean, they didn't want to see anybody doing well, and they wanted to tear them down. Um, so, I know th- this story to me is just unbelievable. This Tulsa race massacre, it was hidden from my history books in, in high school. I didn't learn about it until really about four or five years ago. I heard talk about it and I, and I, I, I thought to myself, how did I not know about this? And then, you know, Juneteenth, I, I learned about that in the 1990s. One of my employees was a, was a black, young black man and he told me about Juneteenth. I had no idea. You know, so again, this systemic racism, I mean, government schools, public schools, they're leaving these things out of our curriculum. Why? A lot of people say, you know, to maintain, you know, to maintain the power structure for white people, maybe. But to me, this is an egregious error of our educational system to leave these important events out, especially when they are such fantastic opportunities to teach people about what our inalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness are supposed to mean and teach people how they can build wealth even if, even if they are oppressed or kept down by the man. There are creative ways that they can go about it, and it is possible. Um, so, I, again, I, I just I'm amazed by this story, and the more I learned about it, the more I really wanted to share it with you. So, um, yeah, I'm a big supporter of entrepreneurism. I mean, I my own business, and I encourage you to start your own thing, man. I mean, st- rather than always working for the man, kind of ha- start it as a side hustle. Maybe you can turn it into something. And you can begin to make a lot more money than you used to make before. And definitely you'll be able to balance your work-life um, situation much more effectively. You can live your life according to your own values. You can pursue your happiness. And I think being an entrepreneur, embracing capitalism is a great way to do it. Again, great lessons from the, the, the Tulsa race massacre. And the the prosperity of Black Wall Street. Okay, um, I'm going to get into business networking here in a minute, but I, I just want to encourage you if you want to continue the conversation on social media, join me at connectwithjohnny.com. I got all the social media platforms where you can reach me. I'm on Twitter, on Facebook, all the audio only podcast platforms are listed there, like Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Pandora all the places you can listen to this podcast. And you can also sign up on our mailing list. Go to 
connectwithjohnny.com or just go to my main website, website johnreillyproject.com. Okay, so... You know, we're, we're talking here. This is a live stream. I welcome your thoughts and comments. Feel free to type in any comments or questions, and I'll read them on the air. Okay, now let's talk a little bit about business networking. You think about, think about you know, Black Wall Street 100 years ago, before the race massacre, and think about how they networked amongst themselves. Black entrepreneurs, black business people, um, black workers, all working cooperatively, all networking amongst themselves and creating vast prosperity for that entire district of about 25 blocks in Tulsa. Think about the networking they did. Let's talk about the networking we can do to make ourselves more prosperous. So this started out actually as a friend of my son's. This young man, he lives here. He grew up with my son when they went to high school together. Now he's a student at the University of Colorado in Boulder. And he is doing an internship with a financial services company in downtown Denver. And this kid is probably going to go on to be one of those kind of Wall Street guys or guys in big finance. He kind of see the writing on the wall. He's a very smart young man. And um, he, as part of his assignment in his internship, he was reaching out to a lot of contacts that he had, asking them about how they do networking. And I was on his list. And he called me last week and he says, hey, Mr. Riley, I'd like to schedule an appointment with you and just talk to you a little bit about networking. I'm like, Okay. And so we scheduled a time and I, I talked with him yesterday afternoon. And it, it just, it was a really interesting discussion because it really made me reflect on my own successes and failures in the world of networking. Um, you know, when I first started my career, I worked for a, a number of large corporations and I was very good at networking internally in the corporation. Uh, people knew who I was. I was, a, in my opinion, I thought I was a very good employee. I was always offering a lot of value because I knew that was in my best interest to do it. Externally, when I was working for a large corporation, I didn't do as much networking. You know, I was in my 20s or my in my 30s. And my 20s, you know, usually after work, I was out with my friends. Although you could, one could argue that that's networking in its own way. In my 30s, I was busy raising children, especially when they were young. But in a lot of ways, I was networking, too, because I was interacting with with other parents who had children of the same age, met a lot of people here in my community. It's interesting when you think of business networking, sometimes people think it's just, you know, swapping of business cards. But networking happens in a lot of different ways, in a lot of really interesting ways. Um, When I started my own business... In 2004, I I did some local networking. I joined the Poway Chamber, and um, that was very helpful. Met a lot of people in the business community, mostly local businesses, mostly mom and pop businesses. And you get to meet people, but it's not necessarily a place where you generate leads. I mean, you would just meet people. And that in and of itself is valuable. After all, isn't that what networking is about? Um, I joined an organization called BNI. Um, I think it's called, is it Business Networking International? We used to meet at 
a restaurant here in Poway and there would be about 30 of us in the room and we would, one person each week would give a presentation about their business and then we would so-called trade leads. But these were never really leads or at least they weren't that often. And, you know, most people kind of knew a person who knew a person, but they weren't necessarily ready to buy. And I, I did that for a while, mostly solopreneurs. I had, there was some opportunity that came from it, but I, I just didn't find it as successful enough for me. And I eventually abandoned that group. Well, actually, they abandoned me because I didn't attend every week. And they finally, they, they cut me off. It was all just as well because it didn't offer the value to me. That's one of the reasons I didn't always go every week. But in a lot of ways, I don't think I was doing networking the right way. A lot of times I had networked properly, unintentionally, kind of without a strategy. So when I had this conversation with this young man who's 21 years old, a Poway kid, good friend of my son's, I wanted to impart some words of wisdom, but, you know, I, I shared some thoughts and ideas. But then after that conversation, I did a lot more, you know, reflecting on this and thinking about things that I could do better. But in a lot of ways, networking in the 21st century is a lot different than it was in the 1980s and 1990s. I mean, the Internet provides so many ways that we can network without actually being face to face, right? With social media, particularly LinkedIn, there's a lot of ways that people are connecting, Friends of friends are being connected in a lot of these online tools, which is fabulous. Um, you're also starting to see a lot more of what I'll call content marketing. And this is something that I'm pursuing aggressively in my own business. Indirectly, this podcast is part of this. Content marketing ultimately is all about providing value, providing valuable information to people in your target market to educate them, to make them better, to essentially give them the tools and resources they need to be successful. That in turn, by gets your word out, you're providing value. And if you do it right, you can get people to pay attention to you and to respond when they are ready to buy, they know who to go to. So content marketing, I mean, like I said, I'm doing a lot of this on my website, offering free tips on digital marketing, on direct marketing, on a lot of other categories, marketing automation, where people can sign up and download a PDF file with the top 10 things you need to do in digital marketing and how to prioritize your digital marketing initiatives. Some of the techniques to be successful in direct marketing. I've written these up essentially as, as miniature eBooks that are downloadable for free. But then, of course, they exchange their email with me. They go into my email list, and then I'm able to communicate with them and kind of expand my own network. But I'm giving them something in order to get something. In a lot of ways, I'm doing networking like this the same way. It's not the same as going out to a meeting where I'm essentially swapping business cards, right? Well, I found an article that was really good, and it was in Inc. Magazine, and it was titled, How to Network Like You Really Mean It. And this article I thought was really interesting because they shared a lot of really important concepts that are important in networking, no matter when we're talking about, no matter if we're talking about in the pre-internet era or in the, in the current internet era. 
I mean, a lot of these rules would apply to people 100 years ago in the community of Tulsa in the, in the Greenwood District or apply hundreds of years ago and because they're, they're fundamental truths. So I thought I'd roll through some of these. Um, this article in Inc. Magazine, I'll include a link in the show notes, but they made a point that if you look at people and in their business career, there's always a small list of people maybe 25 to 30 people were the ones that made the most critical difference in their career. And it's those relationships with those people that really help them get to where they are. And I I think of myself, I look back on, on my career. I'm 56. I look backwards in time. Yeah, there were a number of important relationships that helped me get to where I am today. Honestly, there were a lot of relationships that I passed over that could have been extremely rewarding, but I just wasn't aware. I wasn't paying attention and I missed out. But yeah, those, those relationships are so important. I mean, most small businesses get 80% of their business from only 20% of their customers. And it's usually that short list of important people that you've met in one way or another in, 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 terms, of, in, in terms of networking. Networking by just being out, meeting people, friends of friends, or really the end result of your marketing efforts, which is another way to network. So this article outlined a number of approaches and I thought they were worth talking about. Um, the first the first key idea is kind of like what I said, there was, there was a short list of people that really make a difference in our lives when it comes to networking, is to identify with with this author called the critical few to really sort of make your own sort of top 10, top 20 list of the key people that you want to go out and build a relationship with and make it your quest, your goal to go out there, meet them, form a relationship, get to know what they're interested in and begin to cultivate that relationship. You can't just willy-nilly go out in the world meeting whoever comes your way. You have to have focus and need to target a short list of people. And it's not unlike what a salesperson would do. Most salespeople will have like a top 10, top 100 list of dream accounts, and they work hard to penetrate those accounts. In networking, it's the same way. And you can call that sort of that top tier that you want to go out and reach. But then there's sort of a secondary tier, right? There, there are people that are important, but they're not like critically important. But they're people you still want to stay in touch with. It's almost like that B-level prospect. that You want to still pursue them. You want to cultivate those relationships too, but maybe less aggressively because they're not as important as those A relationships. So again, having a strategy and really essentially stack ranking who you want to reach out to and why and how. And then from there, there's the third tier. It's kind of everybody else. And a lot of businesses are doing this today, you know, with monthly newsletters or instructional videos. And a lot of that's content marketing, right? They're reaching out to large numbers of people, providing value, getting their name out, touching a lot of people, And then working to cultivate those relationships. And sometimes you'll be surprised that a lot of those relationships can turn into very valuable business, um, you know, essentially clients, customers, 
you know, some even develop into very good friends as a result of this. But it's essentially having that sort of ABC list, stack ranking these different groups of people in terms of how you're going to go about your networking. Um, the other part of it is, is, is to find, if you want to connect with someone, find a way to help them first. This is, this is the downfall, I think, when I was in BNI here in Poway. And I, I see some of this when I was in the Poway chamber, is that a lot of times when people are networking, they're talking about themselves. They're, they're trying to sell themselves. Where in networking, I think it's got to be a softer approach, right? It, you have to, it's like we've talked about social media, it's almost like being in a cocktail party, right? You're mingling. That's what you do in networking. If you go to a networking event, you have to have skills. You have to listen. You have to listen to people and then be able to find ways to help them and ideally help them within the category that is outside the scope of the thing that you're selling. Because that's when you have more authenticity in terms of how you're going to reach out and work with them. Here's a comment from Pete Neald on the live stream. For me, it was showing the lead how the equipment I was responsible for selling was going to solve their problem. Right. So no question in terms of when you have a prospect, you want to help solve their problem. You don't necessarily want to sell them on the thing. You want to show the solution. And that's the, oh, no doubt about it, Pete. That's the right way to go about it. But sometimes how do you get that lead? How do you get the lead in the first place? A lot of that comes from networking. If it doesn't come from marketing and advertising, a lot of it does come from networking. And we do networking in a lot of really unique and interesting ways now. You know, it's, I know a guy who knows a guy, right? You, we find those kinds of connections. Um, another angle to this, to be an effective networker, is to be intriguing, to essentially stand out, right? To really kind of, define yourself uniquely and in, in some ways to be a little bit provocative. They're, they're in the article, they talked about how there was a networking event and there was a guy who sold telecom equipment, right? And his friend was introducing him to another guy who was his friend who was a big hotshot at this large company. Hey, I like to meet my friend Steve and he, he works in telecom and immediately the big timer at the large company said, well, you know, we are already re-engineering our telecom and, you know, we don't really need any of that. And the guy said, we used to do re-engineering. You know, some kind of a provocative comment. I thought it was really, it was really good. I mean, sometimes you, if you're in these moments where you're meeting people, you have to be able to stand out. I think it's important for any business person to have what I'll call an elevator speech, right? It's sort of that answer to the question, what do you do? So what do you do? You know, you hear that question all the time. Um, I sell blank. I, I do this. I do that. Sometimes people have really boring answers to that question. I, you know, I, I have a lot of, I, I've struggled with this at times as well. I know in my business, you know, I own a marketing agency. If, if anyone should know how to do this effectively, it's me. And a lot of times I'll, people ask me, what do you do? And what I tell them is I help my clients win and retain their customers using the secret ingredient of time. 
when people hear that, it's kind of provocative, isn't it? I mean, a secret ingredient, time. How do you use time to win and retain customers? Well, I have, a, I, have a, I have this strategy. I have this system that I use to target the right people with the right message at precisely the right time. And that's how my clients are able to win new customers and keep their existing clients. Having a good elevator speech is a way to not only stand out, but to really leave the, the person hanging. You want them to say, tell me more. Um, I, you know, having that canned elevator speech is really important. You know, they call it an elevator speech because when you're in an elevator with someone else and someone says, you know, imagine someone says, so what do you do? I mean, you only have like 10 seconds, right? To capture their attention. We all need that. Whether we are at a formal networking event, like a mixer with the Poway Chamber, or whether we are, you know, just going about our business, just going about meeting people, interacting with people, or as we, as we work within LinkedIn or any other social media platforms to do business networking, have that elevator speech. Pete Neal says, when I made the sale to one company, I then sent a notice to the sales representatives to find the one company's competition. Yeah, there you go. So if you made a sale that solved a problem for a, a company in that particular niche, most likely their competitors have similar problems, right? And you now have a proven solution to that problem. So yeah, um, notifying your salespeople, your fellow salespeople, maybe they had different territories, and letting them know that you just sold this deal, that helps them develop their top 10, top 20 list of people that they want to find a way to network with and connect with. And sometimes they got to find a way to connect with them, at least initially, through means other than directly selling them. Because then that's how they build trust. And then, oh, by the way, I happen to sell this product. Um. Another piece of advice, think people, not positions. You know, we might say, well, I only want to build my list of the people I want to network. I want to make sure they're CEOs of these companies. But you know what? Sometimes a lot of people you meet now in eight to 10 years, they may be, become CEOs. They may become big influencers. And a lot of times, I mean, it's not a perfect science, but a lot of times you can you, you know that you can, you can tell if someone has that so-called it factor, right? That has the potential to become someone special. Those are the people you want to cultivate relationships with too, because you know that they have the skills and the ability that they're going to become something. And then you knew them at an early age. I know I think about for myself, my relationships with um, people that I knew in college, I mean, huge opportunity there. It's resulted in some business for me, but honestly, I don't think I've leveraged my college relationships as well as I should. Not just simply to look for means of doing business, but just really to maintain that relationship. Because even though I may never sell anything to them, they, you know, I know a guy who knows a guy. It's one of those things where they kind of help connect you 
with really good prospects. They're the ones that could be the matchmaker. Um, so, yeah, think about people, not positions. Another angle to this is when you're going out and networking and what you can do is to give before you can get. This is really powerful. So, you know, before you ask someone for something, make sure you are invested in that person. You know, the, the in the article, they talked about this case where the author of the article said he had a college, a college friend who he hadn't heard from in 30 years, sent him an email pitching him on investing in a particular company. And the guy is like, geez, I haven't heard from this guy in like a million years. And he now he's asking for money. You know, that's the wrong approach, right? Um, you can't ask for things unless you're willing to give first. And I, and I know that's hard. I mean, a lot of times we have to be giving. We have to put value out there for other people. And a lot of times, you know, it's, it's not reciprocated, right? And that's, that becomes challenging. But, but putting value out there is a lot of what I think we're doing now, what we're talking about now in the 21st century, content marketing, where people are putting out valuable information. They're giving and giving and giving of their knowledge, giving of their expertise to help other people with no expectation they're going to get reciprocal, you know, return from everyone on that list. That's to me is the right approach. And I've found success doing this in my business. You know, we talk about lead magnets. I mean, that's essentially what a lead magnet is, is putting out valuable content and encouraging people to respond when they are ready to buy. So it's, it's almost like, you know, in the world of selling, you know, sometimes you hear about a pushy salesperson, right? They're pushing, 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 trying to get a sale, hungry, hungry. You know, it's like the used car salesman, right? They're the pushy ones. The, the, uh, the opposite approach is a pull approach. You know, make it easy for people to find you. That's we talk about search engine optimization and really good targeted ads. Make it pe- easy for people to find you, but then provide value for them. Give them something that's important, that helps them, that they can easily access from you. Maybe you create a YouTube channel with really good videos. Maybe you create PDF uh, you know, documents that are small books that people can download to educate them. Find ways to help people. And then when they're ready to buy, they'll, you'll be the first one they think of. So, yeah, give before you can get is really important. And really to go a step further, be generous. Be generous to the point that you don't expect that reciprocation. So, you know, I, you know, I love talking about win-win relationships. I mean, if you have a win-win relationship, I mean, that's like the beauty of capitalism, isn't it? Where you trade with other people, you know, you go out and like when I bought this, you know, Samsung Ultra S21 phone. That's a win-win relationship. I spent money on that phone, a ton of money. These cell phones are just getting to be so expensive. This phone was, I think, about a thousand bucks, but it's a very good phone, just like the new iPhones are. 
But this phone provides tremendous value to me. It's worth way more than $1,000 to me. When I bought this phone, it's win-win. I won. Samsung won. Actually, so did AT&T. That's who I subscribe with for my cellular plan. Um, But in the world of networking, you can't expect every relationship is going to be win-win. You have to be prepared for a lot of win-lose where you're putting value out there and it just isn't responded to, but that's okay. It's kind of like in the world of sales. The more no's you get, you eventually come to a yes. But rather than kind of banging on people's doors, pushing hard, trying to sell yourself, sell your product, just provide value. Just help people. Listen. And we talked about that before. Listen. You have two ears and one mouth. Use them proportionately. Listen to what people need. And then provide that answer for them. I know it sounds easier said than done, but isn't that all part of how we build friendships, build relationships? We are thinking about how we can help the other person. And some relationships blossom, some relationships fade because, you know, it's kind of how we all see win-win versus win-lose. But yeah, be generous. And that will help you in the process. And, and frankly, aren't all these ideas really great, not just for business networking, but for personal networking, for going out and meeting new people, making new friends. You know, I'll tell you what, I, I'm in my 50s. I, I know, I've seen my friends list diminish. Have you? What are you experiencing out there? I'm interested. You know, I was in my 20s. I had a million friends because we were all similar, right? We were all in college or just out of college, pursuing our career. We're all single. And then suddenly, you know, you get married and you have kids. And you're not going out as much. And then a lot of your friends, they, we kind of drift apart and our careers take us in, you know, to different places and we experience different things. And then suddenly your new friends are the parents of your children's friends. And then after a while, your children move out. Like right now, we're empty nesters. Officially, my son just moved out on Monday, going to the University of Oklahoma. And now we are on our own. Now I got to think, you know, I'm working on trying to increase my friend list. Pete Neal says his friend list is increasing. Good for you, Pete. That's great. I mean, I think I've, I've noticed this from a lot of other people. I've heard from others. I've read articles about others that as we get older, sometimes our friend list gets smaller. Some people say that's good. That's healthy because, you know, only the really quality friends are the ones that really remain. But still, I think it's important to always have to be, you know, essentially aware of this, to be building your friend list, not just Facebook friends, but like real friends. And I think a lot of these tips are really important. I mean, it's it's a lot about being generous, right? Providing value, listening, finding ways to help people. And when you do that, the right people will help you back. And then that's when we get value from networking, whether we're in business or we're pursuing social relationships. So, um, you know, again, my, my, my son's friend is an intern. He's, this is the summer after his third year in college. And he's going places, this young man. And, you know, he's, it's part of his assignment is an internship to reach out. Um, and I know he's contacting my daughter, who's a CPA. 
getting her advice from her. You know, he's reaching out to a lot of other people through his connections here in our hometown of Poway. You know, kudos to him. I wish I would have learned these skills more effectively when I was his age. So I feel good sharing these with you. I mean, honestly, like I said, when when I was younger, I didn't have a strategy about networking. Back then, I thought networking was the, you go to a, a mixer and you trade business cards. And a lot of times those weren't really valuable, but I just didn't have the right approach. And I think that as I've learned... I was doing networking on my own without realizing I was networking just about how I went about my business. <laughs> Pete Neal says, Calypso helps. I guess this is why your friend list is increasing. Well, yeah, that's a great thing because Calypso is your Corvette. A lot of people share common interests with you. Corvette enthusiasts, car enthusiasts in general. Yeah, that's a great tool to go out and help and go out there and meet people. Because you know what? Calypso, even though Calypso is your car, when other people experience Calypso, it offers value to them. And that conversation about Calypso, that conversation about your car that you often have in front of Stater Brothers when you go grocery shopping, that is a win-win conversation. They get joy and, and fulfillment about learning about your car, and you get joy and fulfillment about sharing about your car. That's how relationships are made. That's how we network, sometimes without realizing that what we are doing is actually networking. And who knows, that guy you met in a Stater Brothers parking lot might be someone that can help you connect with someone else that might be a customer for you or you might be a customer for them. Funny how matchmaking works. We see some of this on on Facebook, right, where People will say, hey, I'm looking for an accountant. Does anyone have any good references for a CPA? You know, people reach out and do that sort of thing. And again, it's I know a guy who knows a guy. And networking is really important. And if you're in sales or even if you're just a business person in general, you know, maybe you're a financial professional. Maybe you're not a seller at all. Maybe you work in manufacturing or you work in a warehouse doing logistics and distribution. Maybe you work in healthcare. Networking is important because these are people that can turn you on to that next job opportunity, that can connect you with the next important person in your life, maybe even introduce you to your spouse. I mean, it's amazing. So sometimes I think we just have a a better strategy about going about networking. Okay, Um, good. It's 53 minutes. This is great. I really wanted to make sure we got this done in an hour. Lately, I've been going too long on these podcasts. I'm going to really try to shorten these up even more. I want to be a little bit more brief and to the point. But let's here's a couple of quotes that I want to share. And one of them is about, about Black Wall Street. And this is from an author. His name is Robin Walker. And his book is The Rise and Fall of Black Wall Street. And he said, many of the descendants of freed slaves considered it a territory of hope. They're talking about this Greenwood, it was Greenwood, right? Is that the name of the district? Greenwood, this Black Wall Street area, area of Tulsa. They considered it a territory of hope and a place where they could create their own opportunities. For Negroes, it had a traditional association with freedom, which had entered their folklore. So again, these are just the, this is why this story about the Tulsa race massacre is so critical. It's not just the racism part of it, which is a huge part of the story and needs to be brought to light. And there 
you know, leveraging our inalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, in my opinion, is the pathway to resolving racism. But, but you know, equally important, I'll say, is, the, is how they created wealth in that area of Black Wall Street. And they did it through capitalism, through freedom, and from networking. Um, and these were slaves that valued freedom or sons of slaves and daughters of slaves that valued freedom. They understood what it meant. They saw a, essentially a free trade area, a free market area. They flocked there. The, the, you know, the population in that area went from like 10,000 to almost 100,000 in a short amount of time. You know, there was an oil boom, but it was a time of great prosperity. And it was because of freedom and because of capitalism. And then the last quote I want to share, and this is goes to networking, and this is from Zig Ziglar. Maybe you've heard of Zig. He's a motivational speaker, a sales trainer. He's really famous. A lot of really good books he's put out. And he said, you can get everything in life you want if you will just help enough other people get what they want. And isn't that sort of the fundamental rule of networking? If you help other people, then they're going to help you. That's what a win-win relationship is. And that's how we mutually prosper. But a lot of times we have to keep giving. We've got to keep providing value in order to find other people that are going to respond and give value back. And that really is a great strategy, a great paradigm to consider. And I think a fundamental part of what, why content marketing is so important. So at any rate, love sharing this podcast episode with you. I took Monday off. It was Memorial Day. Um, but I'll be back at you Friday, 2 o'clock, same bat time, same bat channel, John Riley Project. This is episode number 239. We're closing in on 250. Um, all good. All good in the neighborhood. All right, friends. We'll see you later. Have a great day out there. Bye-bye. If you enjoyed today's show, do me a favor, subscribe and then share it with a friend or leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Let's continue the conversation on social media. Go to connectwithjohnny.com to get links to our social media content, audio podcast platforms, and to sign up for our mailing list. To be a guest, read my blog or get more information please visit johnreillyproject.com to get started.